Welcome back to Dirty Chai Chats, a podcast all about sexual health, love, and relationships at Tufts. My name is Gio, and I'm the Sex Health Rep's audio coordinator for the fall of 2022. This podcast started in March of 2021 with Flo and I as a co-host. While Flo has graduated, this podcast continues to expand and has become an integral part of the Sex Health Reps platform. I am beyond excited to be starting our fourth semester of Dirty Chai Chats with a special two-part episode on polyamory. So what exactly is polyamory? How is polyamory different from other practices of non-monogamy? How does one go about navigating a new relationship in non-monogamy, especially when feelings like jealousy arise? Today on Dirty Chai Chats, one of the United States' leading polyamorous experts, Dr. Eli Sheff, tackles these questions, giving listeners a foundational understanding of non-monogamy and polyamory. With that, let's get started. Thank you so much, Eli, for joining us today on Dirty Chai Chats. I am beyond excited for our two-part conversation. So to get us started, can you tell us about yourself and the work that you do? Well, thanks so much for having me. My name is Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. I usually go by Dr. Eli. I am a sociologist. I've been studying polyamory since 1996 and have conducted the longitudinal polyamorous family study with four waves of data collection following the same families across time to see how their children fare growing up in polyamorous families. Um, I also study BDSM and I'm an expert witness. I um, testify in court either for kinky sex gone wrong or polyamorous families um, with somebody trying to take their kids away or limit their custody in some manner. Um, I'm a relationship coach. I specialize in the non-monogamy mismatch where one partner wants monogamy and another partner wants non-monogamy. That can be a difficult conundrum. I'm an author. I've written four books and probably 25-ish maybe 30, I don't know how many articles in peer-reviewed journals, quite a few. And what else? I'm an educator. I have taught at universities, many different universities, and I am currently doing mostly continuing education for adults, especially counselors and therapists who want to know how to appropriately serve clients in consensually non-monogamous relationships. That's amazing. Thank you so much. As our listeners can probably tell, you are so well accomplished. And I'm just blown away and very impressed by your wealth of knowledge and expertise and dedication to this field. To open us up today, what is polyamory? Polyamory is a form of consensual non-monogamy where people negotiate relationships with multiple partners. Sometimes those are group relationships where everybody is all together. More frequently, they're independent relationships 
where people know about each other and sometimes hang out, you know, um, there's different kinds of polyamory, but the main thing that distinguishes it from other forms of consensual non-monogamy is the emphasis on long-term emotional intimacy and not as much focus on sexuality or sexual variety as, for instance, swinging is really much more about emotional intimacy only between the couple and sexual variety with others. Whereas in polyamory, the couple itself doesn't have to be the center of everything. Each relationship can be on its own footing, although sometimes people do center it around a couple with primary and secondary relationships. But the one of the main things to know about consensual non-monogamy as a whole is that it's not cheating because the people talk about it openly and negotiate with each other around time and safer sex practices and money and, you know, what kind of information people share with each other, things like that. So in cheating, people don't negotiate with each other. One person thinks they're in a monogamous relationship and the other person said they would be monogamous and are not actually Mm -hmm. doing that. Right. And I think that brings up, um, just like off the top of my head too, a lot of misconceptions people have surrounding non-monogamy versus polyamory, specifically around communication and what that looks like, and also how one can go about having something like an open relationship, right? Practicing (laughs) non-monogamy. Could you explain a little bit more the difference between um, something like an open relationship where it is more uh, focused on sexuality and exploring that part versus these longer term commitments of what polyamory is and can look like? Um, Open relationships are kind of an umbrella category. The term open relationship doesn't give you a lot of information about what kinds of structures people have in that relationship. So sometimes it is about um, not really having much commitment to each other and having sexual variety with other people. Um, In other cases, the people are very committed and may only date as a couple or may only have what some people call a hall pass, which is, you know, the ability to go out, let's say like while you're traveling or something or with one other person, an identified person, like your ex from, you know, a long time ago that you've got great chemistry with, but don't want to be with, you can't stand their politics or something. Um, So open is a super broad category could mean almost anything as long as the assumption is that they're not sexually exclusive. Other forms of consensual non-monogamy kind of vary along how emotionally close are people, how much sex do they have outside of an identified relationship. Is there a couple? Is there an identified kind of core relationship or not. For instance, in solo polyamory, people are not looking to be part of a couple, generally. They're more independent. They have partners, but often don't want 
the kind of expectations that come with a spousal-like relationship. Um, Other forms are, for instance, relationship anarchy, where each individual relationship kind of stands on its own and doesn't impact others. So if you have a relationship with person A and a relationship with person B, person A can't say what you're allowed or not allowed to do with person B. Everybody generally in relationship anarchy is making their own structures. So some relationship anarchists agree that they will have kind of more structured connections with each other or with other people. But some are really against any kind of putting boundaries around their partners or allowing their partners to put boundaries around them of what they're allowed to do with their own body or with other people. Right. So would you say then relationship anarchists are not necessarily polyamorous? Absolutely. They may or may not be. Generally, I think that they think of themselves as their own category, not necessarily polyamorous, um, because polyamory does imply negotiation among a group of people with everyone agreeing kind of to the same boundaries. And with relationship anarchy, it really depends on how people do it. Each person might do it differently, but it's not necessarily a group project like that with everyone agreeing on the boundaries. Often relationship anarchists are like, hey, these are my boundaries. How do they work for you? Can you respect them? Oh, this one really bothers you? I might be able to flex on that one a little bit, but these others, no. Right. So what I'm hearing from you is the basis of what polyamory is and in all of its complexions, it's negotiation, it's open lines of communication, it's taking into account not just one partner, even if it is like a primary partner and a secondary, there still is that kind of communication to make sure everyone is consenting, rather than like, relationship anarchists might also have their own boundaries, which is also communicated and consented to, however, they're more firm. Yes, well, I don't know about more firm, but they're more independent. More independent from other people. They're more like this is what I'm doing and you can't tell me whether that's okay or not because that's me. If you want to be with me, you need to accept these boundaries and if you don't want to accept those boundaries, that's okay. We don't have to be together. Um another thing about relationship anarchy is frequently people aren't saying till death do us part. You know, there's not this assumption that every relationship needs to be permanent until someone dies. And if you if it doesn't work that way, it's a failure. I think many relationship anarchists are like, this relationship is good for right now. The way we're doing it, we're treating each other like we want to be together. And if that ever stops, you ever stop treating me the way I want to be treated, then I don't have to stick around. You know, maybe that relationship was good for while it lasted and now we're moving on. Or maybe the relationship is changing to a non-sexual relationship or changing from a non-sexual relationship to a sexual relationship. One big thing about relationship anarchists 
they don't tend to place all this emphasis on sexuality as kind of the marker of an important relationship. For many relationship anarchists, a relationship can be very important whether or not it contains sex. It doesn't have to have sex to make it important. And just because it has sex doesn't make it important. You know, you can have very important relationships with friends and kind of disposable or very casual relationships with lovers as a relationship anarchist. That's really interesting. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have about polyamory? I would say one of the primary misconceptions is that it's very sexuality focused, like it's a constant orgy wherever they go with, you know, people really kind of jumping into sex at the moment's notice and the sex being by far the main event. Mm. And some people in polyamorous relationships are very focused on sex, but it's much easier to have a lot of sex with a lot of people in a different relationship style that isn't so focused on establishing group consent and talking about shared boundaries and talking about emotional, you know, like what kinds of feelings come up when your partner is with someone else or when you meet a new partner, things like that. So while polyamory can be about sex, for most polyamorists, sex is not the main event. They may have sex, but it's not the central focus of their lives. And in fact, my respondents tell me that most of the time, they have sex with one other person at a time, that they may have group sex sometimes, but it's not an orgy every day. You know, like many people outside of polyamory just have this like, kind of sense that polyamory is just out of control, no boundaries, you know, like, everybody having sex with everybody, you know, on the front lawn. And that's really not the case. Sometimes it is an orgy, but most of the time it's folding laundry and talking about their day and doing the dishes and taking the kids to soccer practice. You know, it's like a can be a very mundane lifestyle just with more partners, which makes it in a way much easier when you have to take the kids to soccer practice and earn a living and go to school and clean the house when you have multiple adults participating in that, it makes a lighter load for everyone. So the polyamorous really enjoy that. There's also this kind of conception among the polyamorists and the swingers that they're very different and they're at polar opposites, kind of. And I found in my research that there's actually quite a bit of overlap in the middle, so much so that a man who has allowed me to use his name, and because he's really well known, Ken Haslam, who is a um, polyamory activist and started the polyamory collection at the Kinsey Library, oh, wow. um, he came up with the word swally. S-W-O-L-L-Y, swally, is like the intersection <laughs> between swinging and polyamory that it's more emotionally connected than polyamory and perhaps more long-term interactions, but not as 
many kind of boundaries and rules and as much talking about emotion as happens in polyamory. So also there are some people who are both swingers and polyamorists. So that kind of false divide between swinging and polyamory is actually much more of a gray area. And I really like that word swallowing. Yeah, Ken is hilarious. He comes up with all sorts of, he also uses the term polygeezers for him and other old people who were polyamorous. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. Another misconception is that polyamory is bad for children or that polyamorous families are bad for children. A lot of people assume they're very unstable and some polyamorous families do have members that come in and out. They do have membership turnover, but I would say they have stable parenting and often stable connections with adults who, if they want to retain a connection with an adult who used to be their parent's partner, but the parent, the, the adults broke up, but the kid still has a connection to that person. Often the adults will help the kid hang out with the person that they have a strong connection to. So this assumption that there's huge turnover, there's, you know, like a new dad every month is absolutely inappropriate for polyamorous families very much like people who are divorced and dating and are careful about introducing people to their kids, the polyamorous parents tend to be very slow in introducing people to their children and check the people out very thoroughly first, or don't introduce them, especially depending on the age of the child, don't introduce them as a partner to the four-year-old or whatever, because generally polyamorous families are also fairly social. They've got friends who they're not sleeping with. And to a four-year-old who, let's say the polyamorous family has a dinner party and then plays games or something, and there's just people in the household, the four-year-old is not going to distinguish between somebody who just came for dinner and to play a game, a friend, and somebody who might or might not be a partner, because generally the adult stuff happens after the kids go to bed. So the kids are in bed and the adults are doing their thing behind a closed door. So it's really not that relevant to that four-year-old who really doesn't want to know about their parents' sex life, doesn't really understand sex, is not at all wanting to kind of figure that stuff out. That's too too soon for a four-year-old. But a 14-year-old might need more information, in which case the parents tend to give honest and age-appropriate information. So let's say the four-year-old asks, who are these people? They might say, this is a kissing friend, and this, this friend I don't kiss. And the four-year-old was like, okay, I can wrap my head around that, whereas a 14-year-old 
might need to know much more, not the distinguished about kissing, but more so about does the other parent know about this? Is this a secret the 14-year-old has figured out and this could be terrible for the family? Or is this openly communicated about and the 14-year-old gets the message, this is above board. Any questions you have, we're happy to answer. And that tends to make a huge difference for the kids who can get the pertinent information. This relationship is not clandestine. This isn't a secret, but not a whole load of information about the sexuality inside the relationship. And I think that like, for me, at least that makes a lot of sense, just like you would in a polyamorous relationship have really good or hopefully really good communication between your partners, the same would be with your kids and establishing that kind of relationship. So to me, that makes more sense than like, people not practicing polyamory where it can be a lot harder or maybe you introduce a partner too soon, but it still is that thoughtfulness, I think. Absolutely. And I hope people can also see that in polyamorous relationships, that it's not like sexually based as people presume it to be. It is more relationship based. It's more connection based, which I really have appreciated you emphasizing and kind of shifting a little bit. Since this podcast too, it's specifically geared towards college students and people still figuring out their sexuality. Do you have any tips for people looking to explore polyamory, specifically navigating for the first time, communicating in this way that you aren't taught in sex education, and then also navigating things like jealousy? The first thing I would say is if you're interested in polyamory, think about how you would feel if you are in love with someone and they are dating someone else. I think a lot of the draw of polyamory for many people is the idea of multiple partners for themselves. You know, like a lot of people are like, oh, I can love this person and still want to have sex with that person and be attracted to that person and think, what fun all this, you know, if I could have like all three of them, that would be great. But they don't think as much about those other people having outside partners mm. and or additional partners or just being one partner to someone they feel very strongly about. So considering that from the get-go, so you don't get into a relationship and then be like, well, no, I get multiple partners, but you have to be monogamous with me because I can't handle you being with other people. And surprisingly many people feel that way, feel like they basically want a harem, men and women both, and people of all genders sometimes want a harem of you know multiple people who are just dedicated to them. And it's okay to want that. It's not really okay to try to force other people into that boundary. Generally, what works better is to face whatever kind of insecurities you have about your partner being with other people. And if you really can't tolerate that, then it's not really fair to expect your partner to tolerate you being with other people, you know? So the kind of glowing, ooh, I could be with multiple people. The flip side of that is those people are also potentially with multiple people. That was so well articulated. And putting that into perspective of, can I do this? Could I withstand this? Is so true. And I've seen it 
with friends who've expressed sentiments of, oh, I think I'm poly or I want to explore non-monogamy, it's hard for them to conceptualize their partner with other people. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dirty Chai Chats. Make sure to tune in next week for the second part where Eli will be discussing the possible future of non-monogamy, opening a long-term relationship, and how her work can benefit college students. To learn more about Dr. Eli Sheff and her work, check out this podcast description with various links. Until next time, stay safe, stay sexy.